This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. How would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home at a job. Elon Musk, I'm guessing, would like to swing on a star. And if you bring up Elon Musk, the conversation often revolves around Tesla. Yes, very important, but only a part of what Mr. Musk is up to. Another big part, space exploration via his SpaceX company, which today launched a Falcon 9 rocket carrying a customer payload and more. Let's get to what you need to know about Elon Musk's rocket business. Dana Hull is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, following all things Elon Musk for us. I'd love to check in with her whenever there's any kind of news. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Dana, good to have you back with us. Um, tell us what happened today and the significance of it. Sure. So this morning, uh, very early in the morning here in California, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket with a, with a satellite for a paying customer, but it also launched its two satellites of its own. And SpaceX has ambitions to create its own internet-based, I mean, space-based internet um, active service. Uh, it would basically be broadband from space. And what they launched today was two test satellites that they're trying out. So, you know, by, they are by no means close to kind of having a full system up and operating. I mean, they're, they're talking about eventually having a network of 4,000 satellites mm. kind of circuiting the globe in low Earth orbit. Uh, but the first thing they need to do is kind of test their prototype to see if it works. Then they would need to manufacture a lot of them. But it's just a sign that, you know, SpaceX has ambitions beyond just being a launch provider. Um, you know, right now they make money by launch, you know, by by being a service. They they launch rockets and they, they help other companies get their payloads into space. Um, having their own satellite network would be a totally new revenue stream for them. Yeah, pretty cool. Tell me, though, you know, we do spend so much time talking about Tesla and the cars that he's making. But SpaceX, you say they're making money. Are they profitable? Are they making money at what they're doing? Well, they are a privately held company, and so mm. we don't have a lot of insight into whether they are profitable. They do have a lot of revenue. They have, you know, a lot of paying customers, which includes, you know, NASA and the Air Force. My sense is that, very much like Tesla, they probably plow whatever money they do get into R&D and into, you know, future operations. So, you know, I'm not sure what their balance sheet looks like, but they're, they've always been sort of a, I mean, just like Tesla, you know, whatever, whatever money, money you do make does get plowed back into R&D. And he certainly has changed the way. I have to tell you, I often say this when we talk about this world, I am truly the daughter of a rocket scientist, and I had a father who, <laughs> no, seriously, he was involved in early space exploration and, and sending things up to the moon initially, and so on and so forth. Um, but it's interesting. I think my dad, not with us anymore, unfortunately, but he would be fascinated by this idea of reusability, and that's what Elon Musk is doing. Yeah, and today today was also significant. So, you know, SpaceX has kind of perfected this ability to land the first stage of their rockets. They've done that over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, sometimes, and I think that there's a limit in terms of how many times a rocket can be reused. So they they didn't cap recapture this first stage on this particular launch, but they mm -hmm. did attempt to capture the fairing, which is the big kind of nose cone shaped object that covers the payload. And you know, they have this boat out in the ocean called Mr. Steven with this big contraption that looks like a catcher's mitt. And they were trying to catch the fairing. It didn't sound like it totally worked this time, but if you follow Elon Musk on Twitter, you know, there's all kinds of information about it. So they're, yeah. they're constantly trying to drive down cost by reusing, recycling, capturing as many pieces of this as you can. Dana, 
you understand this company, you understand the man, you spend a lot of time covering this company, obviously. What is it that you know investors or listeners need to understand about the SpaceX part of the business? Well, I guess I would say that because Tesla is a publicly held company and Tesla and SpaceX is private, a lot of people, when they think about Elon, they really focus on Tesla. But SpaceX is really the company that I would posit that he loves the most. I mean, he, he would he, you know, I mean, Elon made his fortune with PayPal. When he got out of PayPal, the first thing he did was found SpaceX. And then he got involved in Tesla primarily as an investor and then eventually became the CEO. But I mean, SpaceX is his first love. SpaceX is based in Los Angeles. That's where Elon Musk lives. Most of his time is spent, you know, I mean, he, yeah. he clearly, you know, toggles back and forth between both companies. But if you look at his, if you, if you just sort of know him, I mean, SpaceX, space has always been his kind of first passion. That's not to, and that's not to say that he, you know, doesn't spend an enormous amount of time and energy on Tesla as well. Right. But I think that he's a space guy first and foremost, and people forget that because SpaceX is a privately held company. Hey, just quickly, 10, 15 seconds. Is his goal eventually to take this? This part of the business take SpaceX public as well? I don't think so, actually. Mm, I mean, okay. he has said he has said publicly uh, it would be a long time, but I think that he, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to being a privately held company, and um, unless they needed to do a big fundraise, I don't know what yeah. what benefit would come from being public. Yeah, no, lots of benefits, right? All right, Dana, thank you so much, Dana Hall. She is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Check her out on Twitter at Dana Hall. The Emerging Markets Internet and E-Commerce ETF, or EMQQ, is the ticker. Invest in companies including Tencent Holdings, Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu, a bunch more. It is up about 8% this year. Let's talk to the founder of the ETF, Kevin Carter, back with us, founder of EMQQ, based in San Francisco, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York, not wearing a suit jacket, not wearing a tie. I knew he was coming from San Francisco. Corey would love it, because Corey says, nobody wears a tie in San Francisco, unless you're going to traffic court or something like that. <laughs> nice to have you back with us. Thanks. Uh, the fund is doing well. The fund had a this good year. This year, in what's been, yeah, talk to us a little bit about what you've seen over the last 12 months and so. Well, last year was a super good year. Um, the fund was up uh, over 65%, I believe. And and heretofore this year, uh, it's also been up. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, a lot of people see a big number like that and think, I missed it or somehow uh, it's too expensive. But the, the reality is, if you wind back three years, uh, from the time we launched the fund, it's only up about 40%. So the average return's been about uh, 16% a year for three years. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, which is the most important thing to me, the growth uh, is significantly higher than that. I mean, the, the revenue growth for the uh, companies in the fund have grown by about 40% a year. And typically the companies are, I mentioned some of the names, but talk to us about this strategy and the index behind it. Sure. Well, the, the, uh, the strategy is to buy every single publicly traded internet company in emerging markets. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, you know, typical market cap weighting. And, you know, the, the, the story in emerging markets, the real growth story is the story of the consumer. You've got billions of people moving on up and they want more stuff. They want uh, more and better food, more and better clothing, appliances, etc. And that's been well documented and going on for a long time. But now those people are getting uh, essentially their first computer uh, as a cheap smartphone and the, the, and their first internet access. So right. you, you know, we take uh, computers and internet access for granted. We've had it for 20 years in different forms. Uh, but the smartphone is bringing 
uh, both computing and the internet to most of the world. It's fascinating, and I've seen a lot of different reports and stories, like looking at the emerging markets and how the phone alone, like pick parts of Africa, are creating identities for people for the first time by being able to have some kind of account where they can transact. That's absolutely right. So again, because we have had a sort of a traditional consumption infrastructure, we have ATM cards. And right. We can sw- we have swipe. so much here. Uh, but uh, in emerging markets, there's a leapfrogging going on where yeah. you know the, the mobile payments in China uh, dwarfs mobile payments here. Um, some uh, incredibly high number, over 50% of Kenya's GDP is now on a, a, a phone-based uh, uh, platform called M-Pesa. So uh, you're right. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Why did you do this index, though, in particular? What was it about it that you wanted to do this kind of strategy for an ETF? Well, I've been working in emerging markets and uh, and the ETF world for you know 12 years now uh, in different ways. And for a long time, people would ask me, what's the best emerging markets ETF to buy? And I would always tell them to buy the emerging market consumer ETF, uh, which was not my fund. Uh, that was my answer uh, over and over again. And I, you know, I'm sort of a, a s- different type of investor in that I both work in the indexing side and on the active side. Right. And I manage a, a an active, uh, concentrated emerging market partnership. Mm-hmm. And when I set it up, uh, I listed out the you know eight or so companies that I owned, and I ended up with two columns. One were the food and alcohol companies uh, that are part of the emerging market consumer ETF. And on the right column were things like Wuba, the Craigslist of China, mm-hmm. for example. And uh, when I looked at the fundamentals, the food companies and the r- traditional consumer companies were growing at you know, 10, 15, maybe 20%. But then I looked at Wuba, the Craigslist of China, and it was growing at over 100%. Wow. And so finally, yeah. uh, a friend of mine asked me, "What's the, you know, I want to put some money away for my daughter. What's the best emerging markets uh, ETF? And I started to say econ. And then I sort of had my light bulb moment and said, actually, the best way doesn't exist yet. And so that was uh, the inspiration for EMQ. So that was the impetus for doing it. Um, Talk to us about, you mentioned the performance. What kind of investment flows, money flows, capital flows into the fund have you seen over the last year? And I'm also curious about what kind of flows, Kevin, that you saw through this period of volatility that we've seen in 2018. So we had uh, had really good flows last year. I think we... um, uh, brought in close to five hundred million dollars, and uh, it came in pretty fairly steadily, mm-hmm. um, starting in the in the second quarter, and you know the performance was also uh, good. Actually, the, the the flows were probably less than that because there was a decent amount of appreciation. But yeah, uh, several hundred million came in. Uh, the stocks uh, were do- performing well, so that also helped uh, increase the uh, uh, the assets. This year, uh, obviously, we, we went through a little rough, rocky patch, and right. the fund. Uh, it didn't have significant outflows, um, but it did have um, a little bit. I think one, there was one day when there was some uh, redemptions. But for the most part, um, you know, the, the buying has resumed. I mean, in the last week, I know we've had some, mm-hmm. some inflows. And I know I've been traveling a bit, so I haven't been as in tune with the market volatility kind of as I would be if I was staring at my computer all day. <laughs> um, but right. I know it's been volatile and... Uh, uh, maybe uh, we'll move past it, but we'll see. I don't know if you saw this story. Uh, it was on the Bloomberg Today. Jeremy Grantham, um, known for his bearish views, but he said he's so bullish on emerging market stocks that he's telling his own kids to invest more than half of their retirement money in the asset class. What would you tell investors, our audience, 
about well, the emerging markets right now that they may not know? We, we always talk about it being volatile and you know the expanding domestic class. Sure. Well, I just um, got about forty seconds. I, I didn't know that Jeremy had said that, but I'm glad yeah. to hear he's a supporter. Uh, look, I I think he's right. I think people are underexposed to emerging markets. Uh, Eighty uh, uh, eighty-five percent of the world's people are in emerging markets. Uh, even closer to ninety percent of the young people. And the only problem I would say is, you know, most people just buy the traditional broad ETFs, the Vanguard Fund or the iShares Fund. And the problem with those is the state-owned companies, Petrobras, Chinese banks, to get the real uh, exposure to where the growth is. I think EMQQ uh, is the way that I would do it. Shameless plug, but that's okay. (laughs) But great conversation. Uh, I love talking about the emerging market area, and I think there's ways to drill down. Kevin Carter, thank you so much. Founder of EMQQ, based in San Francisco, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Just a short while ago, we had a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal, and this has to do uh, with the net neutrality rules. The FCC um, actually filing officially in the Federal Register um, in regards to this rule. Let me let me have someone who really knows what the, is going on and can make sense of it. Todd Shields is Bloomberg News FCC reporter, joining us in our Washington D.C. bureau. I saw this, Todd, come across um, the Bloomberg, come across Twitter. So, what exactly was done today? Yeah, hi, Carol. What we had happen today was the Federal Communications Commission had published in the Federal Register, which is sort of the uh, the digest for all the official actions here in Washington, uh, they published the rule they passed in December. So no change in the wording or, or only minimal uh, changes and nothing important from the wording they passed on a vote in December. But the rule itself is now out there and will become part of the federal laws or rules, but not quite yet, which I can tell you a bit about the not quite yet if you want. Yeah, tell us about the rules and the change. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. To, to, to review the the Obama, uh, the FCC during when, when Mr. Obama was president passed rules restricting uh, uh, broadband companies like AT and T and Verizon said they couldn't block or slow traffic. Uh, this FCC, led by a Republican, gutted those rules in essence and has a set of rules now that do not prohibit that kind of behavior by your broadband provider. Um, and uh, currently, they say the, this FCC says that competition. We'll, we'll make sure the companies behave, and, and if there's trouble, another federal agency can take over and, and handle the problem. So uh, that, that's the rule that would happen in some number of months. There's still a few bureaucratic mm-hmm. hurdles for this revamp, if you will, of the Obama rule or the gutting of the Obama rule to take effect. Hey, Todd, those in favor, of course, of net neutrality say that allowing Internet service providers to discriminate based on content undermines a free and open Internet. Are they right? Will Internet providers pick and choose? Well, let's see how time will tell. They appear to be free to do so now, although uh, if you've got facing if you're facing competition you may feel less free that the answer by, by by the people who are in favor of the elimination of the Obama era rules is that competition is is the thing but i think a lot of your listeners may know it's kind of hard to find good competition for your broadband provider at home right. and there there are switching costs you know you got to wait around a day for the proverbial cable guy too if you're even in a situation where you can where you can make the switch so you know as soon as the headline crossed about the FCC chairman and and about this change I also saw a headline about New York Attorney General saying 23 states have filed a petition, a bunch of states filing a petition to start a suit versus the net neutrality rollback. How does that play into this? How might that change things? 
Well, they're going to get they're going to ask the court and, and exactly which court remains to be seen. There's a bit of legalism going on with lotteries about where it ends up. But they will ask federal judges to decide that the FCC overstepped its proper role here by changing a rule that was only you know passed just two years before mm-hmm. when there may not have been big reasons to change. I mean, what's the difference between the world in 2015 and 2017? Right. And people like A.G. Schneiderman in New York will say, well, there was no difference. And this is just a political pick you made at the FCC. What also makes me wonder in this era of where we're worried about Russian meddling in the elections and we're concerned about other things and false, you know, Internet, social media postings, you know, might we see someone that we don't want to see have easy access into the Internet be able to pay up for it and kind of get more attention as a result in this new kind of anti-net neutrality world? Huh. Uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a novel idea to me. I don't think it's so much who, who would be buying access as the idea that anybody could buy preferential access. And you'd probably know about it. I would think it would be yeah. pretty big payment. But it'd be the idea that, oh, I don't know, you know, a video company can pay, uh, say, Comcast or AT&T for favorable, favorable terms on the Comcast or AT&T flow. Then it's hard for me, the consumer, to get to that video company's, you know, other video company stuff. Right. So, so that's, that's the main uh, import. I think. As you mentioned, you know, this Obama era rule for, you know, net neutrality uh, just a couple of years ago, and here we are, you know, it's being overturned. Um, Could we in another couple of years, depending on which way the political winds blow, that we could have another change again, if indeed this continues through? Yeah, yeah. If we have a Democratic administration, I think we can see the pendulum swing right back. All right. So what's the next step here? What's the timetable that we're talking about? Well, here we are, a little, a little more review uh, at another part of the federal government for the effect that this rule would have on paperwork, on reporting requirements by the broadband companies. Mm-hmm. And then in a couple of months, and I can only say, I don't know if it's a lot of months or a few, but it counted in months rather than weeks, in some number of months, uh, it'll pop out uh, after this paperwork uh, effect review. Then it'll become the law of the land or the regulation of the land, sometime maybe early fall, late summer, with, with plenty of wiggle room on either side. And uh, then we wait till next year, I think, for a court mm-hmm. ruling. All right. So next year. And and in terms of the companies, I'm just thinking about our our listeners and investors in terms of the companies to be watching. Anybody who basically uh, provides Internet access, correct? Yeah, so you know, the companies that, that were encouraged by this action by the FCC in December include Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, CenturyLink. Uh, companies that don't like it quite as much would be the people who need to go through the broadband providers. So you're talking, you know, Google, uh, probably Apple, mm-hmm. uh, some of your some of your uh, uh, Silicon Valley companies. It's often p- uh, characterized as a, between Silicon Valley and the broadband providers. All right, great as always for breaking it down, Todd. Thank you, thank you, appreciate it, Todd Shields, uh, joining us. Uh, from our our bureau in Washington. He covers the FCC, covers Congress, and you can check out more of his stories. Just go to Bloomberg.com. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Oliver Portia is back with us, chief market strategist at Bruderman Brothers, with us on the phone in New York. 
Oliver, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. You say mortgage applications, things like home prices, commodity prices, also interest rates are among the things investors should keep an eye on. Um, Take mortgage apps and home prices. Why is that so key? Well, so we've seen they're very sensitive to interest rates. And so we've seen a lift and a pickup in uh, interest rates. And we've already seen a drop in mortgage applications. So far, this has not impacted the housing market in terms of home sales and home prices, but it might. And so that's something to take a look at. Home prices are obviously very important because it constitutes a large portion of most Americans' wealth. And home sales are very important because they're a key driver to the American economy. When somebody buys a home, they're not just purchasing the home. They're typically buying furniture, appliances, all sorts of additional things that help drive the economy. So that's a critical thing to pay, pay attention to. When you look at the economy, we, we heard from Kevin Hassett, uh, White House economic advisor, earlier in the daily briefing from the White House. And he was asked a lot of questions uh, in regards to the president's economic report, which came out yesterday, but talked about and questioned about um, the economic outlook. And, and he's said, you know, the economy's as solid, as good as we've seen before. Uh, you've seen various market cycles. Uh, what is this market cycle? What does this economic cycle look like to you at this point, having been going on for a decade? Yeah, I think that for 2018, we're still in pretty good shape. Uh, we're in the early cycles of monetary policy shifts to tightening, meaning tightening interest rates. And historically speaking, when you look at the last 40 years, the early parts of interest rate cycles have not been bad for stocks or for the economy. It's the mid and later cycle that tend to be problematic. And uh, given the tax cut and the various other potential fiscal policy initiatives, such as infrastructure rebuilding, uh, these bode well for the economy as well. So I'm not particularly worried about a slowdown in the global or U.S. economy or a recession in the near term. I am, however, taking, uh, keeping a close eye on inflation, as that could force the Fed to act more aggressively, and that could prove product problematic at the end of the year. We talked earlier, too, about this you know, synchronized global recovery. Our Joe Weisenthal, our markets editor, said, yeah, you know, we have that going on, but he's been noticing some economic reports over in Europe and elsewhere that maybe aren't coming in as strong as everybody had forecast, and maybe things aren't humming along as strongly uh, as we thought maybe a few months ago, you know, when the IMF came out and talked about this synchronized global recovery. When you look around the globe, uh, do you feel like that there's enough momentum uh, to support more gains in equities? Um, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting because we all tend to jump on the same bandwagon. <laughs> so if you look at the economic growth forecasts that were put out this time last year, uh, they're all fairly muted and modest and over time kind of picked up and seem to have peaked in the October, November, December part of 2017. And uh, that's when the expectations got very, very lofty. And so now they're being revised down a little bit and not seeing quite come through as, as strongly. Um, to me, that's okay because, you know, if people do get emotional and do get emotionally carried away with their forecasts. And so you just saw a little bit too much of a rise in expectations that's now coming back down. But on a year-over-year basis, you're still seeing solid economic growth. You're seeing relatively benign inflation. And most importantly, you're right now seeing this both in the U.S. and globally, a pickup in wage inflation, which is going to give people around the globe more purchasing power before commodity and other price inflation kicks in. 
I want to talk about some of the names that you're interested in. And one of them, and, and you, I know some of the strategy that goes into thinking about your picks is you look for strong free cash flow, relative low volatility to uh, a peer group, and also strong margins. J&J is a name that you like, certainly a name that most folks know and products that we all use on a daily basis. Stock's down about 7%. We're looking at a dividend yield of 2.6% here. There's some speculation maybe about selling off some pieces and so on. Um, your thinking here behind J&J. Yeah, J&J, great core holding for a long-term growth portfolio. Uh, it has a solid dividend, has a solid business. Uh, it is a well-run. It tends to be fairly immune to interest rate swings, so it's not particularly interest rate sensitive. Um, you know, of course, that's partially reflected in the somewhat lower than average dividend yield compared to some of its mm-hmm. uh, brethren like Pfizer. Um, but we think it's a solid uh, company. Look, our thesis in 2018 is very different than 2017 and previous years. We are now clearly in the beginnings of a rising interest rate environment, and we're seeing some significant shifts in terms of fiscal policy. So we want to find companies that are impervious to interest rate rises, or as much of that as possible. And that means uh, strong free cash flow, strong gross margins, and relatively low debt-to-equity ratios. And J&J is a great example for that. And we take a look at it and simply say, we want to be unemotional and run our screens and then do some due diligence on a a, a bottom-up basis. But we're not going to get distracted by names and whether they're up or down in the short term. All right. Interesting. Have you been adding to J&J with the recent pullback? Just got about 20 seconds here. It continues to be a key holding, and for new monies and new accounts, we are including it in the portfolio. Absolutely. All right. Good to know, and good to get uh, some time. Oliver, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oliver Portia, he's Chief Market Strategist at Bruderman Brothers, joining us on the phone in New York City. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for your movers and shakers, winners and losers on this Thursday afternoon. I'm Carol Master. Corey Johnson off today. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist, helping me with some of the names uh, on the move in the Thursday session. Let me kick it off, though, with the S&P 500. Almost an even split. 258 names higher today, 244 lower. Uh, This is the uh, equity averages, as you heard Charlie Pellet talk about it, finishing way off their best levels of the session. We've seen this pattern before. We've seen a rally in stocks, and then only to see it fizzle kind of in that last hour or so of trading. And that's kind of what we got today. So again, kind of an even split here in the S&P 500. Uh, Dave talked about this earlier. I'm going to talk about it again because Snap was kind of fascinating to watch today. That stock at its lows down 8.5% today. At the close, though, a decline of 6% down more than a buck to $17.51 a share. Why? Well, Snap's flagship platform losing some luster, at least according to one social media influencer in the Kardashian-Jenner clan. Uh, The Snapchat parent 
shares sink, as I mentioned, wiping out about $1.3 billion in market value on the heels of a tweet from Kylie Jenner, who said she does not open the app anymore. Mm, not doing it, whether it's the demands of her newfound motherhood or the recent uh, app that redesign. Uh, the Testament drew similar replies from her 24.5 million followers. Wall Street analysts, too, have begun to notice, citing recent user engagement trends noticed since the platform's redesign. So she said, eh, not doing it so much. And Dave Wilson, we had that stock down 6%. Well, there you go. Since you talked about a stock that's down, I'll look at the uh, one with the biggest gain in the S&P 500, and that would be Chesapeake Energy. You'll remember them as the shale producer uh, founded by the late Aubrey McClendon. I mean, they've been struggling with debt for years and years, and they came out with fourth quarter results that actually went over well. Earnings surpassed estimates in Bloomberg survey, at least the average projection of the analysts we talked to. And beyond that, while Chesapeake ended the year pretty much where it began in terms of debt with about $10 billion, companies targeting a reduction this year of $2 billion to $3 billion. And the idea that they're going to have less debt and trying to get out from under those obligations at a time when interest rates are rising, well, that, you put it all together, it went over very well. Chesapeake Energy with a gain of almost 22%. On the day. All right, interesting stuff. I just want to mention um, shares of actually, we got a bunch of stuff, let me think, in terms of uh, earnings. Just waiting for Hewlett Packard and Hewlett Packard Enterprises. Haven't seen that yet. Um, I do want to mention Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, we are going to get an update on the company. Um, you got shareholders, uh, a big uh, meeting as well this weekend, and his annual letter also coming out uh, on Saturday. And so we might find a little bit more when it comes to uh, Warren Buffett in terms of his uh, succession plan plans and so on and so forth. So that's something we're going to be keeping an eye on. Uh, shares of Berkshire, though, ending little changed on the day, but we'll see what he has to say uh, about the future. Yeah, this weekend, it's all about the letter, no question. I talked about the biggest gain in the S&P 500. Might as well look at the biggest loss. It belongs to a company called Stericycle. They specialize in handling medical waste. And uh, let's just say their fourth quarter results were badly received, in part because earnings trailed the average estimate by almost 12.5%, the biggest miss in more than a decade for Stericycle, and those shares closing lower by 19% today. I just want to mention Hewlett-Packard now crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Of course, two Hewlett-Packards. You've got HP Enterprise, first quarter net revenue, $7.67 billion. That does top the analyst estimate that was out there of $7.06 billion. Uh, first quarter adjusted EPS, let's break it down, $0.34. Cents. That looks like uh, $0.12 cents better than what Wall Street was forecasting. Uh, the company, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, again, saying it sees returning $7 billion to shareholders throughout fiscal year of 29 and sees a 50% dividend boost starting in the third quarter of fiscal year 2018. So let me get a quick check on what the stock is doing in the after hours. It is up 4.75%. So that's Hewlett Packard Enterprise. As for the old Hewlett Packard, uh, also coming out with its uh, latest quarterly results. First quarter, adjusted EPS, 48 cents a share. That's six cents better than what Wall Street was forecasting. First quarter net revenue, also a beat, $14.5 billion versus the estimate of $13.5. And talking about the forecast, second quarter adjusted EPS of $0.45 to $0.49. Cents. That's better than the estimate that was out there. So boosting that second quarter uh, EPS and year-end adjusted EPS forecast to $1.90 to $2 a share. That, too, is better compared with the estimate of uh, about $1.81. And as for shares of uh, HPQ, 
up almost 7% in the after hours. So a boost to both of those stocks. Wow, big move up. Let's get to the volatility index report real quickly. As we saw stocks uh, move off their highs, the VIX down 5.6% today, closing at 18.88. All right, let's get to uh, Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson, who's in the house with me, and his stock of the day. Dave. And that would be Horsco, Carol. You could call it a mini conglomerate if you want. They, they work with mines. They work with railroads. They make metal grates, heat exchangers, boilers, water heaters, all kinds of industrial businesses. Uh, they've been publicly traded since 1956. The ticker is HSC. Company shares peaked at the end of 2007, just after a bull market in U.S. stocks ended. They never recovered from the bear market that followed. And two years ago, they traded the lowest price since 1984. Today was a very different story. Harsco shares had their biggest gain in decades after fourth quarter results came out. Revenue beat the average analyst estimate in a Bloomberg survey by 9.7%. That was the widest margin for any quarter since 2007. Earnings also exceeded projections, and the company's sales and profit forecast for this year topped the highest estimates. You put that all together, and Harsco's shares surged 17%. They hadn't risen as much since at least 1980, and that's as far back as Bloomberg's data goes. Wow, so it's a big deal, big move then. Absolutely. All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.